I'm Larissa in Montana, and you're listening to Most Wanted. Hi, sissy. Hello. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Lauren. And I'm Amanda. How are you doing this week, sis? Good. Doing well. Um, it's just cold. It's winter. <laughs> Another another cold week. Yeah. Another bleh. Yeah, exactly. Do you think it will um, change anytime soon for us? No. No, because we live in Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Good talk. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I know I told you you didn't have to watch Saltburn yet, so I won't even bring that up. Is Have you been watching anything good? Did you ever finish that Silo series that we talked about? Months ago? Oh, yes. Silo is excellent. Uh, Apple okay. TV Plus. Uh, we finished that. I think we watched it in like two days. It was really, really wow. good. And then I bought the box set of the novels that they're, it's based on for my husband, Ooh. and he flew through them. Ooh. So yeah, good. Very good series. Wonderful. Do, re- do recommend if you like sci-fi. Um, what am I watching that's been really good? The OC. Yeah. <laughs> I have been watching The OC. I listened to recap uh, shows for Boy Meets World and Full House. I've been watching like about an episode of that a week, just like keep up with the recaps. Yeah. That's kind of fun. Um, Basically, I'm all in old TV. My husband and I have been going through Everwood. We're halfway through the fourth (sighs) season. Oh, Everwood. I know. Such a good show. And there are parts I'm I'm remembering how frustrated I would get with some of the characters during some of the seasons. But Hannah. Hannah, yes, but Amy is frustrating. Ephraim oh. is frustrating. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. They're all kind of frustrating. The parents are all frustrating at times. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but um, I did just watch, it's three, it's a three season in quotes documentary on Netflix, plus like a impact show that was like uh, hosted live at the time um, about, called Surviving R. Kelly. I had texted you a bit about it. Yes. Um, it's really rough. But really, really good. And each season shows a bit more of like progress and justice. So the first season, basically no one believed any of the women at that point. Like mm-hmm. they were really sticking their necks out to be on this show. Mm-hmm. And then like within a week after the first season aired, mm-hmm. he was indicted. So then the second season, he had been indicted and they were prepping for trial and more people had come forward. So they were interviewing some new people. And then the third season was right after his first trial. Oh my god! So it's it's satisfying in that way that sure. like you get to see the progress, but it is rough. <laughs> it is rough. I mean, so. I'm sure everyone knows about R. Kelly, but we do actually talk about him very, very briefly um, on one of our past episodes, yeah. episode 29. We covered the Man Act, so yep. and that was one of his convictions was the Man Act. Yep, uh, Charles Manson. We also covered who else did yeah. we cover? Oh, fucking Jeffrey Epstein. He's Jeffrey on that Epstein, one. Yeah. Oh, um, Charlie Chaplin. He's yep, the little mustache Charlie Chaplin, guy. the guy that the the architect. Oh, um. You know, well, you know, you guys should just check out episode 29 and then um, come back. And I think we can we are we allowed to say that I think we're going to put R. Kelly on this? Yeah, we're adding R. Kelly to our list because I think the way that this played out, he may not have been on a wanted list, but people knew what he was doing. Kind of like Gerald Cotton. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Son of a bitch. Right. So I think we will probably not for like a year, but we probably will cover. R. Kelly, see if his appeals get resolved before yeah. we cover him, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's what I've been watching. It's been kind of heavy, but, you know, you watch a season of Surviving R. Kelly and then you watch one episode of Full House. <laughs> I mean, it is balance. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Are you ready for this episode, Lauren? I am so ready. Who will we be talking about? So I have a little intro before I go into What's My Crime. Okay. Kind of for you, but kind of for our audience too. So this is the first day of February when this comes out. Happy February. Um, so that means it's the beginning of Black History Month. Yes. And uh, since we we started in February last year, I didn't. I'm hoping to do this from every fe- every February moving forward now. Sure. To like cover and highlight uh, stories related to this history. Um, in a lot of cases, these stories will be related to the civil rights movement, but not in every case. Right. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that, like Lauren and I, have had the privilege of living as white women. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I'm I want I want to tell these stories because I feel like the history needs to be out there. But I also know that I I don't personally know what it feels like to live as a black person. So right. it's telling the story from reading and hearing from other people what their experience has been and telling that back. So, mm-hmm. um. If there are ever people who want to like contribute to a conversation with us about some of this stuff, we'd be happy to do that. Yes, and absolutely. but I I just feel like these are important stories to tell, so I will be covering them specifically in February, but also probably s- scattered throughout the year too. As, absolutely, as they come up, you know. So uh, wanted to say all of that moving forward. This is the first in I think a series of five episodes, four that I do and one that you're going to do. Yes, um, in this month of February. And this is our first one. So this week we're covering Angela Yvonne Davis. Angela was added to the FBI's most wanted fugitive list on August 18th, 1970, and was removed after her arrest on October 13th of the same year. She never appeared on any other wanted lists, and as far as I can tell, was never arrested again in her life. Wow. What do you think her crime was? Something that probably isn't considered a crime anymore. (laughs) <laughs> was she protesting? <laughs> I mean, so this is what's interesting, and we'll get into it. She was arrested for an actual crime. Oh, okay. But, but, she, they really wanted her out of the public eye because of her political beliefs. So you're Got not, it. you're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> at all. What do I think she did? Did she, like, was it a B&E? Was she breaking and entering into something to... I don't know. There, there is an aspect of B and E in in this story, okay. In some ways, so I, I, I like the guess. Thank you. It's it's wilder than you're gonna think. <laughs> I was like, I know she. I'm almost positive she didn't kill anyone. Yeah, yeah. So it's this is a wilder story than you're probably going to be expecting. Okay. Um, I read a ton of sources for this. I neglected to write them all down before this recording, so I apologize. We'll get them all at the end. But a lot of major news publications. I read or read parts of several books that Angela wrote herself. And I uh, read some different things on Wikipedia as well. Um, There was also an excellent documentary on Netflix that I watched that she is a commentator on. Oh. And uh, I'll name drop that later on in this episode. But uh, she's just, she's so fascinating. I'm really excited to tell you the story. All right. Uh, content warnings for this episode include discussions of murder, kidnapping, and bombings, but nothing too specific. This is just like kind of things that happen along the way in some regards. Okay, so are you ready for her early life and education? I am. Okay. So Angela Yvonne Davis was born in Birmingham, Alabama on January 26th, 1944. She's an Aquarius like me. 
Aquarius women. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We're the weird ones. Um, so uh, you're not the weirdest, but you're definitely top five. <laughs> Absolutely. <out of> time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, she grew up in a neighborhood of Birmingham that was called Dynamite Hill. And this is a lot more literal than you'd probably like to know. Okay. Um, in one of the documentaries I watched, they showed an old interview of her talking about her childhood in Birmingham prior to and in the early days of the civil rights movement. And she stated that they would constantly hear explosions and gunshots, and her dad had to have a gun ready because you never knew what was going to happen. And what was actually happening was in the 1950s, um, white people probably affiliated with the KKK, but she didn't say that in this interview, mm -hmm. um, they would purposely bomb houses in mm -hmm. Angela's neighborhood in an attempt to scare away the middle-class Black families that had moved there because segregation. Wow, so fucking cool. Right. So that is how she grew up, was That's with this- awful. Yeah, violence around her constantly. Um, Angela had one sister and two brothers. Her sister's name was Fania, and her brothers were Ben Ooh. and Reginald. Uh, her Fania, brother, I love that. Mm -hmm. Her brother- uh, her brother Ben would eventually play defensive back for the Cleveland Browns and the Detroit Lions. So he was a professional football player in Ooh. the 70s and 80s. Angela's mother, her name was Sally, uh, was an activist in her own right during Angela's childhood and was a national officer with a group called the Southern Negro Youth Conference. Uh, at that time, they were aimed to build alliances among Black people in the South because that was part of the... Um, the goal of segregation and like all of the policies down there was to keep black people separate from each other. So they didn't all band together basically and realize that they wanted more. So what this group was trying to do was do exactly that, band them all together Absolutely. under like a common goal. Um, this group was heavily influenced by the communist party and therefore Angela was surrounded by communist thought and activism in her childhood. Uh, Angela's best friend as a kid was the daughter of another SNYC official. Her name was Margaret Burnham. She comes up later in this story. Okay. Angela was also a Girl Scout as a kid, and with the Girl Scouts, she marched to protest racial segregation in Birmingham as a teenager. That's not what I remember doing with the Girl Scouts, so <laughs> good for her and good for them. I think, I think Girl Scouts have changed quite a bit since that era. Yeah. We mostly just sold cookies, but. Um, you guys went on a camping trip and I got poison ivy. We did go on a camping trip. That's true. I didn't feel like I learned much about camping, but we did do that. And did you guys stay in a cabin? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, okay. we did. And there were so many mosquitoes. That's what I remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this version of the Girl Scouts were actually out in the streets picketing, which is wow. pretty impressive for yeah. teenagers. Um, during Angela's junior year of high school, she applied for and was accepted into a program called the American Friends Service Committee, which was a Quaker student exchange program of sorts that placed Southern Black high school students in integrated schools in the North. Okay. Yeah. So she was, she was brilliant. She was a really good student yeah. and was able to earn this particular um, opportunity to spend, I think she spent like a year and a half to two years in an urban high school in Greenwich Village in New York City. Wow. So, totally different from what she had been, um, her education in Alabama. Yeah. While she was in New York City, she was recruited to join a communist youth group called Advance. If you haven't picked up on this yet, communism plays a large role in this story. Got that. 
So when I mentioned that she was kind of jailed for political beliefs, yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. Yep. Uh, so now I'm going to move on to her higher education, her activism, and the crime at the center of all of this, and mm-hmm. uh, in, in the, the wanted list part of it, at least. Sure. Um, after high school, uh, Angela was awarded a scholarship to Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, do you remember Brandeis? I do. Why? Um, no, don't tell me. Bernadine. No, the other ones. <laughs> it was uh, Saxon Power. Saxon Power went to, uh, yeah, they, they went to Brandeis. Okay. And probably overlapped, but I think Angela was a little bit older than okay. them. Um, so she enrolled at Brandeis in the fall of 1962. Uh, she was already an activist at this time. She'd been protesting since she was in high school mm-hmm. in the South. Uh, and she was introduced to the prominent German philosopher named Herbert Marcuse at a rally protesting the Cuban Missile Crisis her freshman year at Brandeis. Wow. Um, he told her about a communist festival in Helsinki, Finland, that she attended in the summer of 1963. Uh, so it said that like she worked part-time to like earn this extra money, because she had a full, a full ride to Brandeis, so she yeah. didn't have to pay for anything. But she yeah. earned this extra money to be able to travel to Europe that summer. That's so cool. Right? And Good for her. Uh, I mention Herbert Marcuse because this philosophy and him in particular, he becomes quite a mentor for Angela Davis. Oh, okay. So I think I mentioned him once or twice more in the story, but she kind of follows him for a while to like where he is studying and she kind of researches under him. Um, when she returned from this trip to Europe, the FBI was waiting for her because they wanted to interview her regarding her attendance at a communist event. Mm. Naturally. Yeah. So this is the beginning also of her involvement with the FBI and her like entanglement with the FBI. Sure. This and this is occurring in the early 60s. So it's after the majority of the Red Scare and all that had supposedly ended. I don't know how much you know about this. I'm going to tell you a little bit. Um have you heard of like McCarthyism or the Red Scare or anything like that, Lord? Russia. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> That's actually the whole thing. So a brief <laughs> A brief primer regarding how our country hated and arguably still hates communists. Um, Senator Joseph McCarthy and good old J. Edgar Hoover spearheaded this fishing expedition after the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War that insinuated that everyone with communist belief system was a spy, specifically because they were afraid of the Soviet Union. Boy Meets Um, World episode on it. Yes, there was a Boy Meets World episode on it. That's right. Flash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how they I all was go like, under their desks. Yes, <laughs> and that's how Corey escapes. Yes. <laughs> um, looking back on this with like the added hindsight of like decades of additional history, this is just nonsense. Sure. Um, but it was honestly just the beginning of Hoover's shenanigans and interference with this type of thing and like activists. Um, if anyone is interested in this this stuff, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, particularly if you're interested in the effect it had on the blacklist of Hollywood, there is a really, really good um, series of episodes on the Hollywood blacklist on, an, on a podcast called You Must Remem- Remember This. Sorry, I kind of fumbled that. You Must Remember This. Um, it's probably from like eight years ago, but super well-researched. It talks about all of these um, actors, directors, producers, writers who were affiliated with communism in quotes and therefore like not able to make a living because no one would hire them. So 
just yeah like i'm watching your face and you're just like blink blink because this is so stupid <laughs> this is so stupid but it yeah this was like late 40s through like the mid to late 1950s this was in full effect um so Very anyway cool yeah communism equals a visit from the fbi for young angela davis she was probably like 19 jesus yeah can you can you imagine as a 19 year old showing up back at your dorm to have fbi agents waiting to talk to you like i would um no pooped my pants <laughs> i didn't even like when i showed up back to the house that i rented and like my landlord was there i was like what did i do <laughs> i know like if my RA and they the were like nothing me, i was like you... oh no <laughs> yeah it's he's like nothing i have to replace whatever it's like <laughs> sir you scared the sh- literal shit out of yeah, me yeah like why are you knocking on my door please don't yeah please don't do that um so she's back at brandeis for her sophomore year and then her junior year she studies abroad in france where dang girl i know she attended classes yeah she attended classes at oh gosh and i don't speak french biarritz and the sorbonne so two decent to prominent probably a range in there somewhere universities in france in two different parts of france wow um angela was in france during this study abroad year when she learned about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in her oh, hometown of man. Birmingham. Yeah. One of the girls who had been killed was her neighbor back home. Aww. And all of them had been close to her sister, Finia. Oh, my God. So this hit very, very close to home for Angela. And she was abroad when it happened. So she's like seeing that segregation isn't a thing elsewhere. It's literally just a thing in the United States. So she's kind of She's building her worldview as this stuff is happening around her. Yeah. So she returned to Brandeis for her senior year and then decided to pursue graduate work in philosophy at the University of Frankfurt in Germany, which is where Herbert Marcuse went. So she moved abroad. Girlfriend! I'm, wow! <laughs> yeah. When she graduated from Brandeis, she obviously graduated magna cum laude because, of course, she did. Of course, she did. Um, so Angela spent two years in Germany before returning to the U.S., where her mentor, Herbert Marcuse, had taken a professorship at the University of California, San Diego. So she moves out to California. Um, she received her master's degree in philosophy from UCSD in 1968 and completed the requirements for a Ph.D. in philosophy from UCSD in 1970. However, she never received the actual Ph.D. Why? And because this is, again, it makes me so bad. Because the FBI confiscated all of her academic work prior to the awarding of her degree due to her communist ties and beliefs. Shut up. So they just confiscated it, so she never got to defend her thesis. Or her dissertation, I guess. But yeah, so she just never got the PhD because the FBI took all her stuff. Like, that's so rude. It's it's Among other things, it's it's rude. rude. Among other things, of course. But. I know. There's a, a point later, and you'll know exactly when I hit it, where like I mentioned this kind of stuff again. It's just like, it's just rude. The FBI is being so rude to her. <laughs> Are we related? We'll never tell. We'll never tell. Um, never fear, though. Angela received three honorary PhDs in 1972. Hell yeah, she did. One from Moscow State University. Oh. One from the University of Tashkent, which is in present-day Uzbekistan. Oh, but part of the Soviet Union. And the third from Karl Marx University in East Germany. Whoops. <laughs> so it, it just shows clearly she was a communist thinker because these communist yeah. countries are like, please come over here. And yeah, we'll give, we'll you, give you all of the <laughs> we'll give you all of the uh, degrees. Yes. 
Um, so despite never actually defending her dissertation, in 1969, Angela was hired as an acting assistant professor in philosophy at UCLA. Good for her. At this time, she was about 25 years old, and she was considered a radical feminist member of the Communist Party USA, along with being an affiliate of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. So she was, she was in it. She was an activist, probably yeah. first and foremost, above all of her academic work. Yeah. Uh, and she was really, really cool. Honestly, like in, in hindsight, looking back at the stuff she believes, she was so far ahead of her time. And you will see yeah. that more as I, as I keep talking. Yeah. Um, but with the FBI constantly on her tail, it must have been a little nerve wracking, even though she didn't carry herself as if it was. Um, but the same year that Angela was hired by UCLA, the University of California system initiated a policy that prohibited the hiring of communists. Yeah. So on September 19th, 1969, barely into the school year, like yeah. look at that date, barely into the school year, yeah. Angela was fired from her assistant <laughs> professorship due to her membership in the Communist Party. Good God. Yep. This decision by the UC system was urged on by none other than our favorite tough on crime president, who was governor of California at the time, Ronald Reagan. Don't I even was... get me started on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so I don't know if I would assume Angela appealed her firing. That, that's yeah. the part of the story that I'm not 100% sure on how it got to a judge. But a judge actually ruled against this decision. Okay. A, a judge ruled that, like, you can't just fire someone because of their political party affiliation. Right. That's illegal. So is that Angela, a protected class? It's not, but it falls under free speech generally. Oh, I gotcha. So, like, if you're protesting and stuff, that's that's protected speech. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You, you can't get fired for that. Um, so Angela was reinstated, but fired again on June twentieth, nineteen seventy, for the inflammatory language. You can see me quoting, but that's yep. in quotes. Yep. Uh, that she used in some speeches that she gave. And what was the language that was so inflammatory? You ask. She called the police pigs. That was why she was fired. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, so inflammatory. Consider oh. what people say now. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I have very colorful language. Is it any of these things? I'm happy you said it because I was nowhere close to what. <laughs> it's just fine. Yeah. So I don't even, like, I mean, we've been talking about it. I don't, I don't really know, even know what to say about this because it just seems like such bullshit to me. Yeah. But. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of all I have to say. Um, so now I am going to talk about the crime that landed Angela Davis, an academic, a communist, an activist, but an overall nonviolent person. Yeah. On the FBI's most wanted fugitives list. And it all centers on the Soledad brothers. So we're going to have to take a little side quest. Okay. Have, have you heard of the Soledad brothers? Name sounds familiar, but. Okay. So the Soledad brothers were three black inmates in Soledad prison in California who had been charged for the murder of a white prison guard. Ooh. The three prisoners were named George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and John Clochette, but the circumstances that led to their charges was sketchy at best. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about all of this and then let you kind of tell us what you think. Okay. Um, so this all starts with a quote-unquote riot in the prison yard in Soledad. 
Okay. On January 13th, 1970, 16 prisoners had been released into the prison yard for the first time in months. And that makes it seem to me, I didn't look into it further, but like that they hadn't been allowed outside in months, which is so horrible. Right. Um, Of the prisoners in this group, two were white and 14 were black. Okay. My understanding is that the two white prisoners were members of the Aryan Brotherhood. Jesus Christ. Okay. The white prisoners were allowed in the center of the yard and the black prisoners were told to stay to one side. Like they were trying to keep them separate, Fuck. supposedly. Like, okay. Like just all of this just sounds so bad from the beginning. Yeah. Um, still, a fist fight broke out. Yeah. From what I read, there were no makeshift weapons, nothing like that. It was just a fist fight. Okay. Um, a prison guard, who is also an expert marksman, was up in one of the towers on the outside of the yard. Okay. And he fired at the group of fighting prisoners, killing three black men. Oh my god. No warning shot had been fired, which is often customary in yeah. a prison shooting context. Yep. Um, following this incident, 13 black inmates went on a hunger strike in an attempt to get the prison to investigate this incident. Absolutely, okay. Yep. And then George Jackson, one of the three that ends up being considered mm-hmm. a soul dad brother, he described it in a letter as watching three of his brothers get murdered by a pig shooting from 30 feet above their heads with a military rifle. Yeah. An investigation was eventually done by Monterey County, which I'm assuming is where the prison sits. Mm-hmm. And they returned a ruling that the deaths were justifiable homicide. Fuck that. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, Monterey County had not allowed any of the black inmates in the prison yard to testify <laughs> during this investigation in quotes yeah yeah so this ruling was then announced over the prison radio like to alert the prison we're not doing anything about this 30 minutes after this announcement a different prison guard was found dying on the floor of the prison after he had been beaten and thrown from the third floor tier of the wing where jackson drumgo and clutchette were housed The three of them were indicted on first-degree murder charges on February 14th, 1970. The three were then known as the Soledad brothers, um, had a lot of support from the outside. Uh, They maintained their innocence, that they didn't do this. Okay. As far as I could tell, I mean, the trial happens later, but as far as I could tell, they didn't really have any proof that they did it, except that the three of them were part of a communist group in prison. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. And one of the guys that was killed in the yard was also part of that group. So like, it was like close to them. Yeah. Um, activists. Well, one of them said it was like three of his brothers yeah. or whatever died. Yeah. So of course they give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. Whether but- they fucking threw the guy off the third tier or not. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably fucking pissed. But sorry. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Activists on the outside formed the Soledad Brothers Defense Committee, of which Angela was an active participant, Mm -hmm. often demonstrating for the Soledad Brothers, picketing, marching, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. During this time, she exchanged letters often with George Jackson and worked with his younger brother, Jonathan, on their defense Mm -hmm. on a very regular basis. She became family friends with the Jackson family, Mm -hmm. Uh, which leads us directly to the crime we're talking about today. It's been a bit of a journey already. Sure. So now it's August 7th, 1970, in Marin County, California. Jonathan Jackson, who was only 17 at the time, showed up at a courtroom where three black defendants were being tried. 
He was armed. He gained control of the courtroom by force. He helped arm the three defendants, and they kidnapped the judge, the prosecutor, and three female jurors. Their goal in doing all of this was to bargain for the release of the Soldad brothers. Did this, like, did they think this was going to be successful? I have a lot of questions about this, but this, um, this is just what happened. This is the story. Um, it was a bold move. It was an ill-fated mood, move. Um, while in the getaway van, one of the defendants who had recently been released by Jonathan Jackson and armed by him, mm-hmm started firing at police. Nope. And then, of course, police fired back. The judge and three of the four black men were killed in the crossfire. Oh, my God. One of the jurors and the prosecutor were injured, but oh survived. Oh, God. One of the deaths was of 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson, mm. the orchestrator of all of this, and that broke Angela's heart. I read parts of her autobiography, and she opens talking about this event happening. Mm-hmm. And just like he was seventeen, yeah. Like she's like it was like losing a little brother. Oh my god! Like seeing this on the news. So another small side quest uh, about the judge's death. From what I've read, they're kind of unclear on exactly how the judge died. Like okay. un- unclear on who was at fault. I guess oh, is, a, okay. is a better way to put it. Um, he had two bullet wounds that the medical examiner stated would have each been fatal. Okay. One was in the head that came from the shotgun that Jonathan Jackson had been carrying. Mm. And the other was in the chest from outside the van, likely a from police a, Yeah, from officer. a police officer. Yep. Um, it's interesting in general, but especially interesting considering the, how the rest of the story goes. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the shotgun, along with some of the others in Jonathan Jackson's arsenal, had been purchased by Angela and were registered in her name. Uh-oh. Now, what is unclear to me, because I probably didn't, I didn't have time to finish her autobiography before the library took it back, <laughs> was um, how he got it. I, I'm guessing that she purchased it, and she was family friends with them. She didn't, like, hand it to him, but, like, he knew where it was. Sure. That's my guess, but sure. I didn't get to the point in her book where she talks specifically about that if she does i honestly don't even know if she does but if she does i didn't get to that part of the book um but at that point gun was registered in her name he started this and he's dead so he can't say what how it happened right um and at that time in the 70s in california the law there stated that anyone involved in the commission of a crime are principals in the crime Meaning that even though Angela wasn't physically present, her gun was used, so mm-hmm. she was she was there essentially. Yeah. Yep. So on August fourteenth, nineteen seventy, Angela Davis was charged with aggravated kidnapping and first degree murder in the death of the judge, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. Woof. Yep. Four days later, J. Edgar Hoover himself added Angela to the FBI Most Wanted Fugitives list. She was the third woman to be placed on the list and the first of several Brandeis graduates during this counterculture movement to be placed on there by Hoover. So now Angela's on the run and we're going into an ad break. Hey, it's Lauren and Amanda. And we host Most Wanted, a true crime podcast. And we have some exciting news for you. 
Mark your calendars for July 12th to 14th, 2024. We're heading to the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Denver, Colorado, and you won't want to miss it. Amanda and I attended the 2023 festival, and we are so excited about the changes coming in 2024. They've rolled out a podcast education track tailored to seasoned creators and those dreaming of launching their own podcast. This weekend isn't just about podcasts. It's about advocacy, ethics, and building a community. Worried about costs? Don't worry about it. This festival is designed with you in mind, an affordable experience without sacrificing quality. There are no inflated costs, just a weekend packed with authenticity, education, and networking. Have you ever wished for genuine one-on-one interactions with your favorite creators? Well, now's your chance. Don't miss out. Snag your tickets at truecrimepodcastfestival.com for an unforgettable experience. Join us and use code WANTED to let them know we sent you. See you there. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Angela's arrest and the trial and her time in jail and whatnot. Okay. So the reasons that Angela ran after this crime happened are detailed pretty thoroughly in the early parts of her autobiography. Um, It boils down to the fact that she watched all this stuff happen and she just didn't trust the government. So she was like, I'm going to get railroaded. Like, this is stupid. You can't blame her for thinking that. Not at all. Not at all. So she, with the help of some of her friends, she was in several different states, you know, throughout, um, I think it was only like two months that she was Mm -hmm. on the run, but she kind of moved around. Um, This is the part where I said I was going to come back to. Also, I want to point out that on her FBI Most Wanted poster, Mm -hmm. she is called a teacher. Sir. She was a college professor. (laughs) She was in a couple different places for the months after this happened, but she ended up in New York City again, which is where she was eventually arrested on October 13th, 1970. After her arrest, Richard fucking Nixon on air, like, I don't know if it was radio or TV or whatever, but congratulated the FBI on their, in quotes, capture of the dangerous terrorist, Angela Davis. It's one of the most loosey-goosey uses of the word terrorist I've ever heard. <laughs> he also said he wasn't a crook on True. national whatever True, media. so that's, maybe that's our giant grain of salt on yeah. anything that Nixon says. Yeah. Um, so Angela was transported and housed in a women's prison in New York and continued to be an activist in prison. Uh, first going on a hunger strike for better conditions and using her legal power through her lawyer at the time, John Apt, along with her old friend, Margaret Burnham, who had recently graduated from law school. Hey, Maggie. Uh, I'm going to call you Maggie. I'm yeah. sorry. That was fucking rude. <laughs> um, she was successfully able to petition to be let out of solitary confinement and released into mm-hmm. Gen Pop. Mm-hmm. So they were apparently really concerned. They were telling her that they were concerned that she was going to get beat up. And that's why they didn't want her in Gen Pop. But like, she's like, I was passing women in the hallways and the few times they let me out. And they're all like, hi, Angela, we're, we're so sorry you're here. Like, they were so pumped to meet her that she's like, mm, they're lying to me. I was going to say they're probably like, um, thrilled. Well, not thrilled that she's there, but like, yeah. Yep. And what it obviously actually turned out to be was they didn't want Angela to share her communist belief system with the other prisoners. OMFG. Yeah. Um, Get a grip. I know. So her time in prison was also the beginning of her belief in prison abolition, which I will be talking more about later. Okay. Um, 
And then on the outside, while she's sitting in prison, um, there was a huge free Angela Davis movement that continued on throughout her trial and everything. Like the people were just like, she is a political prisoner. This is ridiculous. Why isn't she out on bail at the very least? Like, let her out. Yeah. And it took a very long time for that to happen. Um, John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote and released a song called Angela about her. And the Rolling Stones released a song called Sweet Black Angel, which was also inspired by the Free Angela movement. So, like, she was in the pop culture lexicon. Like, people knew who she was. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Most people considered, like I said, they considered her to be a political prisoner and had, like, that no one really cared that much about this crime that she supposedly was an aiding and abetting party of. Yeah. And, like, anyone else would have been let out, but they're not letting her out. Right. Um, but I wrote, good luck keeping Angela contained, though. <laughs> yeah. Best of luck to you, bitch. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So Angela was held in the Women's Detention Center in New York for almost a year while she and her lawyers fought extradition to California, but eventually she was extradited. In New York, they weren't allowing her any option for bail, but once she was extradited to California, they allowed her to be released on bail. They just made the bail incredibly expensive. So... Using the system, I, I don't know when this started, but like that you have to pay a 10% bond to be able to get out on bail. Mm-hmm. If that was the system that was in place, then her bail was a million dollars. Jesus. In 1970. Like, that's outrageous. That's insane. Yep. So a California dairy farmer teamed up with a wealthy businessman from uh, that was part of like Central California, and they were able to pay her one hundred thousand dollar bond. Holy to get her shit! Out. Wow. I did. I did do the adjusted for inflation <gasps> for you. Yes, that is equivalent to over seven hundred and forty thousand dollars today for bond. Holy shit! That's so much money. It's so much money. Um, she had been for incarcerated. her to be like aiding and abetting. Yeah. Isn't that oh, ridiculous? Oh <laughs> my god. Like that's how that's how dangerous in quotes they thought she was. And at this point she had already been incarcerated for 16 months. Just holy just shit. Nuts. Um so she was let out. She obviously didn't run again because she's not she's not a criminal. That's no. not her her jam. So instead, she threw all of her energy into her own defense. So, yep, she was part of her tr- own trial team, and this trial team pioneered some techniques that are still used in court systems today. Okay. They hired psychologists to help evaluate the jury pool, and they used experts to discredit eyewitnesses to the courtroom kidnapping. So, wow. very, again, ahead of their time, things that helped her uh, show her side of the story. Right. Uh, in the end, it was an all-white jury. In Santa Clara County, California, which I think is just a white person county. <laughs> like, yeah, sounds like <laughs> at, it. at least then. Um, they deliberated for 13 hours before they found Angela not guilty on all charges. Okay. Uh, the fact that she owned the guns was not found to be sufficient proof that she was involved in the crime. Thank you. Yep. So she was at that point free. So a notable thing about the trial that I wanted to share um, Angela was a commentator in the Ava DuVernay documentary called 13th, which okay. is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good. It was nominated for an Academy Award. Like it's, oh, it's wow. okay. really, really good. Um, it, 
the documentary is about the 13th Amendment, and it talks a lot about the prison industrial complex and the issue of mass incarceration. Um, and it relates back to the end of slavery, which is what the 13th Amendment is. Right. And there is a caveat in the 13th Amendment that says, unless you've been convicted of a crime. So that's it, like it's the whole thing is about like they use prisoners as unpaid labor, basically. And it's just yeah. on and on and on. So, um, they showed a clip during this this documentary because Angela they're they're talking about like the seventies and she's saying like even if you look at my own case like the way that they were treating black people mm-hmm. like the racism in the law enforcement and prison system were just mm-hmm. so evident and she's so well spoken it's she's really interesting to watch talk mm-hmm. um, so they show a clip of a video of Angela walking into her own trial in 1972. She's got a full afro, which is a hairstyle she is still wearing to this day. That's what she's kind of known for. Um, And this other commentator, he's a young, younger black man. He, you can tell he's just like in awe of her in general when he's talking. And he said that most people, 1972, white county in California, they would have like flattened their hair, tried to make themselves look more appealing to white white people yeah Yeah, exactly like make themselves look more like the white people yeah but not i understand it but i hate it and me too and like watching him that's part of his awe he's like everyone else would have done this but she didn't right right and so he said and they showed it in the clip she walked into that courtroom with her natural hair and her fist in the air good for her like you can incredible it was it was yeah it was and it was just so fun to watch him tell it back while you're also Aww. seeing the video of like her fist up and stuff like it's it was just really cool so again watch the documentary it's great okay um and it to me it showed more than anything else just how powerful she was and still is and the influence that she's had on her own generation and every generation after her right in terms of activism in particular um and like I said, it's just such a good documentary. It'll make you feel horrible about the state of the country, but yeah, well, it's a really good documentary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now I want to talk about Angela's Free. I want to talk about the aftermath and her ongoing influence. Okay. So after Angela's acquittal, she went on an international speaking tour, and some of the communist countries that she visited were highlighted on Wikipedia, like okay. just talking about this tour. Yeah. Um, she went to Cuba and visited with Fidel Castro. She visited the Soviet Union on multiple occasions for different honors and speaking engagements. So Mm -hmm. she was kind of all over the place. She also spent some time in East Germany long before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So like literal separated East Germany. Yep. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, she received those honorary doctorates from some of those countries as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, she continued to be a controversial figure in the U.S. because of her beliefs, but she was welcomed in many other locations in the world. Yeah. And- it was kind of like the way that it's kind of told, it's almost like the US was the only place that she was considered like a dissident. Yeah. And yet that was her home. And she kept coming back here because she's like, I get that I'm welcomed everywhere else, but I want to go back and keep trying to change this place that needs to like move ahead, move forward. Yep. Um, so uh, now I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about Angela's activism. Okay. Um, Part of her activism, I'm trying to think of how to like lead into this because it's so different from everything else in this episode. Uh, she was connected personally to Jim Jones of the People's Temple. Yep. Um, 
in hindsight, particularly, this is really interesting because you you can tell in what she says publicly at the time and just how it's portrayed that she only had a very small piece of the puzzle of like what was going on, yeah, uh, down in Jonestown and all of that. Um, and it is, I just think it's it's interesting and worth sharing because it shows everyone's very complex. Like, mm-hmm. just there's layers to everyone. Yeah. Um. So. Jim Jones was known when they when he originated his People's Temple in California to reach out and connect and befriend progressive leftist leaders in the counterculture in the 1970s. This included Angela, mm-hmm. along with others that were named. The only other one that I thought was super notable was he also befriended Dennis Banks, who was part of the American Indian Movement. Yeah, um, I do have an episode planned. It's probably like a year from now where he will be part of the episode um, that Dennis Banks will. Okay. Um, Angela was known to send messages to the People's Temple compound in Guyana, and there was a really bad child custody dispute related to Jonestown that kind of led to the decline in favor mm-hmm. of Jonestown. And during that dispute, Angela urged President Jimmy Carter to not support the retrieval of the child from Jonestown. Like she believed that the child was better off with the People's Temple than at home with the other parent. Um, And this was all centered on her belief that Jim Jones was a true humanitarian who was trying to establish a community without racism, which she found very commendable for obvious reasons. Yeah. But again, it was like a piece of a much larger puzzle that it doesn't seem like she had at the time. Right. And obviously the world became aware of that darkness in November 1978. Um, so you and I have talked about potentially covering some cults later on in this mm-hmm. podcast, and that is one I would like to cover if we end up doing that eventually. Mm-hmm. So just I have a question for you that's kind of it's on the topic of Jonestown, but not mm-hmm. on the topic of Angela Davis. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you learned about Jonestown? Uh was that was it a freshman or sophomore year of high school in um World Religions class. I was going to say, please tell me it was World Religions with Mr. Yep. Morrison. It sure was. I yep. want to give him a hu- the hugest shout out. He was one of my favorite teachers. Mm-hmm. Mine too. And just, he gave every, he gave you the full picture. Yeah. He didn't just one-side it. And so- We watched- Yes. A documentary about yes. Jonestown in that class. Yes. Yeah. And I that will always stick with me because it's the first time that like you really saw both sides. You saw what they were trying to do. Yeah. And then you saw what- what happened yeah. you know like yeah. <laughs> so yeah no that he, he was a very influential like to my belief system i, I have never yes. even really thought about it before but kudos yeah. to mr morrison yeah i just wanted to give him a shout out because i was i was i was hoping that you yep. had the same experience i did so <laughs> yep. shout out mr morrison I, I also remember his rule for tests that you could bring the one cheat sheet. page of notes Oh, I loved his cheat sheets. Yep. And you could you could make it yourself. So we just wrote really, really small and wrote the mm-hmm. entirety of the notes out. Yep. And my friend, um, my friend Anna, shout out to my friend Anna. One time she made a scroll. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> she said like the biggest piece of paper. So she wrote regular size. <laughs> shout out Anna. I know. It was the best. <laughs> I'm sorry, we can get back, but I was just I was hoping that you had the same experience yep, with I did. Mr. Morrison. I, I think cool. I think that's part of why Jonestown in particular is so interesting to me now as an adult. Yes. Too. Same. Yeah. Just same. He like sowed that seed. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so now moving on to Angela's professional life. Um, 
Angela lectured at several universities in California in the 1970s and early 1980s, mm-hmm. including the Claremont College System, the San Francisco Institute of Art, and San Francisco State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was hired as a professor in the History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies departments at the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1991. Mm-hmm. And she remained there in that department until her retirement in 2008. And now she's a emeritus professor there still, mm-hmm. too. Okay. Uh, during that time, she also taught courses at Rutgers University and was a distinguished visiting professor at Syracuse and Vassar College. In 2014, she returned to UCLA as a regents lecturer, where she delivered a public lecture in the same hall where she taught her first class 45 years earlier. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's crazy. That's incredible. Yeah. And the, the documentary that I watched, I think, was released in 2016. So, like, she is still like lecturing and teaching and like being in this realm of activism and stuff yeah. t- to this day. She's she's not very I mean, she's older but she's not very old. She's like 80. Yeah, I think she turns 80 this year. Yeah. Like probably she, when this episode comes out like last week, she turned 80. Oh, for real? Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, Angela. <laughs> Happy birthday, Angela. <laughs> um, for most of her adulthood, now we're kind of going into uh, this is kind of a hodgepodge of stuff just like the rest of yeah, what happened yeah, in fine. her life. Um, For most of her adulthood, Angela was a member of the Communist Party USA, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a stupid name for a political party, but whatever. Um, She was the vice presidential nominee for the party in both 1980 and 1984. But Gus Hall, the presidential nominee on the ticket, um, the two of them got less than 1% of the vote in both elections. Because America still isn't ready for communism, like for even those ideals. Yeah. Just not ready. Yeah. May never be ready. Probably. Um, Angela left the CPUSA in 1991, which was the year the Soviet Union broke up. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that she disagreed with the totalitarianism that was creeping into communist countries, and she didn't want to be affiliated with that. She also didn't agree that the CPUSA supported the Soviet coup d'etat attempt after the fall of the Soviet Union. So, like, mm-hmm. Soviets were trying to, you know, overthrow again. Yeah. And she didn't like that. CPUSA supported that. Right. Um, so in 1991, she founded a new party called the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. Long name. Yeah. Uh, she stated in 2014, so jumping way to the future, that she still has a relationship with CPUSA, but she never rejoined the party. Um, wow. In 2020, Angela supported Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, in an interview with the New York Times, she was asked about that because she's been a lifelong communist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she stated that it was kind of, for her, the lesser of two evils, Mm -hmm. because she said that Trump had damaged the court systems with his nominees in a way that would take decades to correct. Mm -hmm. And four more years of that would be just more damaging. So she was purely looking at it from like a judicial point of view with her like prison abolition activism. Right, right. Um, and without getting into my obsession with the Supreme Court again, I agree with her. Uh, <laughs> uh, so she calls herself now to this day, a small C communist. So it's okay. not like a political party affiliation for her anymore. It's just kind of her belief system. Yep. Um, and her belief system is more like the original Marxist ideas and less the totalitarian totalitarianism that communist countries have come to adopt. Right. Since they became political parties. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Since her own year-plus stint in prison, Angela has become a staunch supporter and advocate of prison abolition. We've, mm-hmm. I've now mentioned this several times. Do you know what that means? Nope. Okay. So prison abolitionists basically believe that prisons are not the answer. Like, they think everyone should be free from prison. Um, I'm not... I, I, I have a complicated like feelings about about this movement mm-hmm. um but in in 2003 angela published a book called our prisons obsolete so it's it's a really interesting look at her beliefs that like there's just other options for criminals and i i haven't read this particular book it's interesting for me like trying to come away from being part of law enforcement to even consider this as an option. Sure. So it's been like a very interesting addition to my worldview to just like read about this and try mm-hmm. to like wrap my brain about like, okay, the, well, then what happens? And like, I think you and I can agree that a lot of the people we talk about in this podcast, where else would they go except for prison? Right. Like, to me, I feel like they do need to be separated from the public. Yeah. So this is interesting to me. I have complicated feelings about it. Sure. But this has been a belief of hers for decades now. Yeah. Um, the next thing that I find very interesting. So the term intersectionality uh, was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a lawyer and professor um, mm-hmm. in 1989. But the principles have been alive since this counterculture movement. Mm-hmm. I know we talked a bit about it when we discussed Bernadine Dorn. Yep. Um, and Angela Davis was also discussing this concept of intersectionality before it had a name. Mm-hmm. So one of her best-known works was published in 1981, and it's called Women, Race, and Class. Mm-hmm. So the whole book is discussing how this, the intersectionality of gender, race, and class, and how for like poor Black women, mm-hmm. they are on the 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 bad side of all of these things mm-hmm. and they get the shortest end of any stick mm-hmm. and it's it's just this she was just so far ahead of her time like mm-hmm. it's just this this thing that people are still trying to wrap their minds around there are some people right. that still don't really believe in intersectionality right and like their feminism is inter- intersectional still it's still like white feminism and stuff so like mm-hmm. it's just it's just fascinating how truly in the future she was when yeah. she was writing and teaching and being an activist. Um, another way that Angela was way ahead of her time was in her support of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement toward Israel. So she's been writing about this for decades, and it's like super timely now. Yeah. Which Holy is shit. so interesting. Um, I'm going to just talk about her beliefs. I'm not trying to get political. This is just what yeah. she has written about and talked about a lot. Okay. Um, she's been publishing articles and books calling for Israel to be sanctioned and boycotted long before the current conflict due to their occupation of territories where Palestinians are living and their unwillingness to give Palestinians any sort of homeland. Wow. So in 2015, so again, before the current conflict by almost a decade. Yep. Um, she published a book called Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. I actually own that book. I've been reading, it's like a series of essays. I've been reading the essays as I prep for this podcast episode. Yeah. And it's so interesting how truly 
I've said this how many times now. She was just in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. She just, she saw things that were coming. Yeah. That no one else seemed to see. Right. And the whole, that uh, set of essays is like, it's weaving together like her beliefs about Palestine into Black Lives Matter. And like the response to Ferguson, which is where Michael Brown was shot. Yeah. And like, it's, it's this, I don't know. She, her brain, if like I, to be inside her brain, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in there, but she's in the future. Um, so honestly, that's pretty much all I have to say about activism and stuff. I have one more thing to tell you about, and then we can wrap up. Okay. She has just been so active in the years since she was acquitted of, yeah. her, of her crime. Um, so the last thing is I want to talk a little bit about her romantic relationships. Okay. Uh, so she was briefly married to a man named Hilton Braithwaite from 1980 to 1983, mm-hmm. but they divorced without having any children. Mm-hmm. And then as far as anyone knew, she was just like a single woman mm-hmm. after that. Um, but in 1997, she participated in an interview without magazine and she came out as a lesbian to the public in 1997 wow as like a black lesbian too yeah that's so like again good for her in the future yeah. oh yeah um and now currently she's been living with her partner her partner's name is gina dent they're both academics in california mm. so add like LGBTQIA plus activism to her intersectionality theories. And she's yeah. got kind of all of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's what I have to share with you. This was a really long script that I actually kind of flew through. I'm kind of impressed with it. I'm very impressed. <laughs> how wow. We went through this. Um, we talked Lisa, about an almost two hour episode. I, I know. I thought it was going to be very long. Yeah. I've maybe it's because I've mostly been talking at you, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I've, it's so fascinating. First of all, I don't have a lot to contribute, but it's just, it's fascinating to hear that she, yeah, she's just so ahead of her time that. Yeah. Yeah. And how timely of her right now. Right. I know. Like From what the a seventies and eighties. What a time. Like, I feel like it's what a timely time to be yes. talking about her, I guess. Which is too. funny because we've had this episode slotted for 54 Since we weeks. Since started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So researching this has been so wonderful. I've yeah. really enjoyed learning about her and her work. She's so multifaceted and interesting, and I just think she's really cool, too. Hell yeah. Um, so I could probably go on for days, but I did try to keep it a little shorter. But Fan I want to hear- to the max right now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I get it. <laughs> now I want to hear final thoughts with Lauren. What do you think of all of this? Um, I'm also fangirling without all the research, just from what you're telling me. She sounds incredible. Um, I. Basically, um, yeah, I don't really believe in the prison abolitionists, but I don't believe she should have ever been locked up for her right. quote unquote crime. So I guess yeah. I understand where she's coming from with that aspect. But no, I just think that, um, again, she's a very timely lady and again, way ahead of her time. And just, uh, she sounds like a real badass. Yeah. Totally agree. Also, the I'm going to get a full ride to Brandeis, but then I'm going to study abroad and study abroad and study abroad. It's like, ma'am, good I for know. you. Yeah, like look just at you. to be Live a cultured, um, yes, a cultured queen is just yes, absolutely from the seventies, like right or sixties, sixties, yeah, she yeah. Started in the sixties. Incredible, incredible. 
Um, one thing I realized in writing all of this and telling it to you, I never told you the end of the George Jackson story. No, you didn't. So sorry to back up a little bit. Okay. I will tell you the ending of that. Um, so during the Soledad Brothers uh, trial, like leading up to the trial, he had a lawyer who's, I, I didn't write this down, so a fairly famous lawyer because that lawyer actually becomes a fugitive as well. And it's an interesting story. Um, but George Jackson met with his lawyer and then was taken back to his cell. And the prison guard who was taking him back to his cell uh, noticed something shiny in his hair and asked like to remove it. The hair ended up being a wig and he had a gun under it. Uh. So he was trying to escape from prison. He was unsuccessful and he was killed. Oh. And so George Jackson actually died before the Soledad brothers went to trial. But the other two were acquitted. Oh, of killing that guard. Good. So Good. My my assumption was that George Jackson probably would have also been acquitted because they were tried together. Okay, but I don't know that because he he died. So yeah. it's it's hard to, and especially like I think so a lot of people, both brothers died like pretty yes. soon after yes. this. Oh, yep. that's terrible. They were both very young. George Jackson was in his twenties, and oh my he God. was he was in prison for something much more minor. It was like a burglary charge. Jesus, Christ. and then he you know then he got this murder charge was added like just yeah. yeah so i think a lot of the george jackson story is kind of colored because they're like well if he didn't do it then why was he trying to escape from jail with a gun <sighs> and it's like why the same reason that angela ran when she didn't do anything because mm-hmm. he didn't trust them he right didn't trust the government to give him a fair trial no so oh my god yeah, so I I should have put that into that part of the story, but that's the ending of that story too. And that was another thing that Angela mentions in her autobiography that like it just broke her heart. Yeah, absolutely. That, Again, her, her like a brother. Dying. Yeah, exactly. Another one. Yeah. Exactly. I don't have any more thoughts. You want to go into sources? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Sources for this week include our articles in Smithsonian and National Museum of African American History and Culture, their page called Angela Davis. Uh, on the website New York History, there was an article called Women and the American Story, Life Story, Angela Davis, 1944 to no end date because she's still alive. In the New York Times Magazine, a very good long article called Angela Davis Still Believes America Can Change by Nelson George. On Thought Company, um, an article called Biography of Angela Davis, Political Activist and Academic by Joan Johnson Lewis. On History.com, an article called How Angela Davis Ended Up on the FBI Most Wanted List by Antonio Mejias Rentas. On the History Makers, an article called Angela Davis with no byline. In The Guardian, an article called Angela Davis, We Knew That the Role of the Police Was to Protect White Supremacy, in quotes, by Lanre Bacare. In the National Archives, there was an article slash webpage uh, just called Angela Davis, born January 26, 1944. On Speak Out, uh, there was a page called Angela Davis, author, educator, and activist. And then I read parts of both Angela Davis's book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and part of her autobiography called An Autobiography. I also watched two documentaries that she was a commentator on. The first one was called 13th, and the second one was called Stamped from the Beginning. And then I did look at some things on Wikipedia. 
Well, thank you guys so much for joining us again on a wonderful episode. This was incredible. And um, happy February, everyone. Happy February. Uh, They're going to have a, we're going to have a, what'd you say, five more episodes, Mm -hmm. four more episodes just like this. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this one and stay tuned and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're looking to see pictures of the people we covered on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram at a most wanted pod. We also post true crime trivia there every Sunday. You can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at a most wanted pod. Find us and like us on Facebook at a most wanted podcast. You can send us an email at a most wanted podcast at gmail.com. Visit our website at a most wanted podcast.com. And please remember to listen, subscribe and love. Bye.